Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, where we will read first of the death of Jacob and then the death of Joseph. The death of Jacob takes place in verses 1 to 21, and the death of Joseph in 22 to 26. Verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please, let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the evil which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, 
I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. First verses 1 to 3. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. This is because in the previous chapter, verses 28 to 33, Jacob or Israel, he dies. The patriarch, he dies. It says in verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob died and in the afterlife, he was gathered to his people. Then in chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph's response to this, being present at the time of his last breath, of Jacob's last breath, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him, showing the great love and concern he had for his father, the way in which he had an endearing relationship to his father. This is a natural and normal response that Joseph had. And also in 46 verse 4, 46 verse 4, it says, Joseph will close your eyes. God told Jacob that Joseph would close his eyes, meaning when he dies and eyes are typically open when one takes his last breath, that Joseph would be the one to close the eyes, physically be present and close his eyes. This would be a promise of Joseph's presence with his father, Joseph's concern for his father, Joseph's longevity, that Joseph would be the one who would outlive his father, which should be the normal way that people die. Fathers die, should die before their sons. And all of this is implied with Joseph closing his eyes, falling on his father's face, weeping over him and kissing him. This is the proper, natural, honorable, compassionate, endearing way in which there should be a relationship between father and son. Joseph is not sinning. And there are aspects of this passage where interpreters, false interpreters, are, accuse Joseph of sinning, or Joseph or others in this passage of sinning. They are not sinning. This is proper to respond in this way. We'll come to, back to this point um, in other verses here. Verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Joseph, he has uh, physicians or embalmers. We should probably call them embalmers because the definition of physician is a very flexible one. There are witch doctors, there are magicians, there are drug dealers, and they all claim to help you with your health and death, with your life and death. In, in this case, strictly speaking, the embalmers, those who were experts in embalming corpses of humans. And Joseph, he commands his servants, the physicians, to do so for his father. And the question is naturally, why? Yeah. Is Joseph sinning here? Because some interpreters say Joseph is practicing the embalming practices of the pagan idolatrous Egyptians. Therefore, he's doing wrong. 
he is uh, conceding and compromising his faith and causing this to happen. No, this is not what's happening. They are experts in preservation of the corpse, and he's making use of their expertise since it will be many days, many weeks, until his father is buried. They observe a proper time of mourning, and then he takes the trip, the travel, with a large caravan to go to the land of Canaan to bury his father. And for that reason, it is necessary to preserve the corpse as long as is necessary until the burial takes place. That's all that's happening here in terms of preservation. But also, we ought to ask, why is it that even Christ and others were prepared for burial? Where they were embalmed or spices were used for their corpses. Because that is a symbol of the life to come. That in the life to come, there will be no decay. The hope of those who bury their dead, when they embalm them or prepare spices for them to allow for their bodies at least for a few days to appear normal, as normal as can be, without breath and without the eyes open and the mouth speaking, as normal as can be, it is typifying, it's symbolic of the life to come in the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. That's why bodies are preserved at least for a couple of days. Now, at least those who have faith believe that. Others, they do it just because it's tradition or custom or everybody else is doing it. But in terms of those who have biblical faith, we are anticipating the resurrection of the dead when our bodies will be immortal. They will not suffer decay. They will not suffer death at all. Verse 3. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. 40 days of embalming and preparing and taking care of the body. This was the typical requirement, as is mentioned in verse 3, to embalm their dead. Not only do they take that long and elaborate process to preserve the body, but the Egyptians themselves weep for Jacob 70 days because he had lived there long enough, plenty of years, and he was also known, or the father of Joseph, who was well known in the country for saving the country, delivering the country during the years of famine. Joseph is the governor or ruler, the second in charge of the whole nation, and therefore the Egyptians would naturally have some kind of respect for Jacob, the father of Joseph. Verse 4. And when the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, The days of mourning, presumably the 70 days, after the 70 days were complete. And by the way, in Egyptian history, the kings or the pharaohs of Egypt they would be mourned for 72 days. It was their custom to do it for 72 days. Jacob is not a king, so perhaps that's why they stopped at 70, giving him great honor, but not as honorable as their own kings. Then in verse 4 
When this time passed, the morning days passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, He speaks to the officials, to the elders, those of the nobility in the household of Pharaoh, the following. And you'll notice in verse 4 and throughout this passage, and also throughout the Old Testament, and somewhat in the New Testament, that quotes are introduced by this word, saying. Because this is a Hebraism. In Hebrew, to introduce a quotation, they would say, saying. Something would be announced, and then saying, and then the quote. In some of our Bibles, especially the more modern they are, they delete that word, and they just put a comma and a quotation mark. But those who are attempting to be more literal, such as the NASB in this passage, they keep saying twice in this verse and throughout this chapter. And you'll notice this throughout the Old Testament, and this is somewhat carried over into the New Testament. A quote is introduced by the term saying. So, what did Joseph say? If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying. Joseph was honored among the leadership, among the officials of Pharaoh. And he is not presuming upon that. He is practicing some humility, if now I have found favor in your sight. And not only that, please speak to Pharaoh. He's being very courteous and polite, though he has an extremely high position of authority. He is higher than the officials of Pharaoh. He is higher than they, but with humility, he has this request, even saying, please. Verse 5, my father made me swear saying, Jacob made Joseph swear, swear related to his burial. This is mentioned in chapter uh, 49 and verse 28, 49, 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is his charge to all of his sons, including Joseph, to be buried here in this cave that Abraham had purchased. But we find also in chapter 47, chapter 47, where the oath part of this is revealed. In chapter 47, 27, 47, 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. At this point, this is when Jacob makes Joseph swear. Now, swearing is swearing an oath. It's not swearing by using profanity as we use that term today. It's not swearing profanities or cuss words. It means swearing an oath before the Lord. And Joseph agrees to this, and he is under oath to bury his father accordingly. And he reminds the household of Pharaoh that this is the case, that Jacob did so. And also notice that Jacob was in Egypt 17 years. He lived there 17 years, which is enough time for the Egyptians to become acquainted with him, especially as they know Joseph and Joseph's father together. He was 130 when he arrived in Egypt. That's according to chapter 47, verse 9. He was 130 years old, 47, 9. And then he lived in Egypt 17 years and died at age 147, according to 47, verse 28. Well, Joseph, being faithful, faithful not only to his father, but especially to God, because these oaths would be sworn in the presence of God. Joseph being faithful in those two ways, both to his father and especially to God, he says, as um, he made me swear, there you shall bury me. Now, not only that, but notice in verse 50, verse 5. Behold, this is what is in the content. Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. He prepares a burial place in the cave for his own burial. Now, this is done throughout history in many cultures. Even in the Bible, Joseph of Arimathea in Matthew 27, 57 to 61, Joseph had a cave and he prepared a place in the cave for his own burial wherein he also, he placed Christ there. So this should not be a surprise that Jacob does this. He did this earlier in his life, preparing a place. Now, why would Jacob prepare a place there? And why is he concerned about being buried there? Why was Abraham and Isaac and their wives buried there? Why was Jacob's wife Leah buried there? Why did they make careful preparations for burial in Canaan? Of course, with the patriarchs and matriarchs, they lived there, so it would be natural to die there. However, sometimes, like is the case here with Jacob, he's going to be transported from Egypt to Canaan. So why could Abraham and Isaac and their wives not be buried in Mesopotamia, whether in Haran, northern Mesopotamia, where they lived for some years, or live farther in southern Mesopotamia, in Ur of the Chaldeans, where Abraham originated. He could have been uh, buried there too. Why did he choose to be buried in Canaan? 
Why did Jacob want to be buried in Canaan? And at the end of the chapter, why does Joseph want to be buried in Canaan? Are, are these superstitious people? Do they believe in something that's kind of odd and crazy? Are they that way? Or does Canaan, their desire to be buried in Canaan, represent what they believe about the afterlife? Did they believe in the afterlife and the fact that Canaan was a symbol of heaven? Did they believe that Canaan was a type and a shadow of heaven? The heavenly country, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. Did they believe in that? Did they know that? Yes, they did. Yes, they're not petty and and they're not uh, concerned just about reputation or anything like that. They are concerned about heaven. It's a fact that they knew about heaven. 47 verse 9. Genesis 47, 9. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant, or few and evil, have been the years of my life nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Jacob calls his life sojourning and his father's sojourning. Well, who sojourns? Sojourner, sojourn. But a sojourner is an alien. He's not a native. Aliens sojourn in the land of others. Now, Isaac and Jacob, they were born in Canaan. So they were not foreigners in that sense. Only Abraham was, Abraham and Sarah. They themselves were not, but all of them are considered here as aliens or strangers in the land of Canaan. Yes, they were nomads. Yes, they were um, shepherds. They were, in that way, having to move from place to place to find green pastures, but they were born there. The majority of them were born there in this statement. And why does he call his years on the earth few and evil? Few and evil. Well, he's lived a long time, longer than others live, but he still calls his lifespan few and evil, not merely in relation to Isaac and Jacob, Isaac, who lived 180, and Abraham, 175 years. Not just that, but because he's thinking about heaven. He's thinking about the heavenly Canaan, just as David did. 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 15. 29, 15. For we are sojourners before you and tenants, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. He sounds like Jacob here in 1 Chronicles 29, 15. What did Jacob and David both understand? That they were sojourners before the Lord. They were tenants on the earth, as all our fathers were. Jacob or David includes Jacob and all of his faithful ancestors. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. Few and evil have been the days of my sojourning. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. Who wants to live in the shadow? No. And he says there is no hope. 
There is no hope where? There is no hope if in this world. There's no hope in this world. The hope is in the world to come. Psalm 39. This is David again. Psalm 39, verse 12. 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. I am a stranger with you. God is on the earth, and even God is a stranger with David on the earth. Because the ultimate home, the supreme home, is heaven. And the same with the ancestors, the faithful ancestors. Further, we find in Psalm 119.19, 119.19, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. And 119.54, 119.54, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. The statutes of God, the words of God, the laws of God are his songs while he's living in the house of his pilgrimage. He's got a pilgrim house. What do pilgrims do? They are not the natives, correct? Pilgrims are sojourners. They are foreigners. They are not the natives of the land. This is the same with the hope of all of the Old Testament saints. And this is confirmed. This interpretation is confirmed in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. This passage in Hebrews may be familiar to us, but have we considered the implications of what is said here? It's not as though the apostle here in Hebrews is imposing a wrong or false interpretation on the Old Testament. People take the apostles that way. Not only this apostle, but all the apostles... Uh, coming up with a new, ingenious, inventive interpretation of the Old Testament where they think the Old Testament does not contain these doctrines. The Old Testament has to do with peace, progeny, and a pot belly. Leisure, luxury, and licentiousness. That's what the Old Testament is about. This world, this life, not the life to come. That's what they think. Many, many false interpreters take the Old Testament that way. But we just read... How Jacob and David understood that they were strangers on the earth. Their citizenship was in heaven. Now, that which we saw just briefly in the Old Testament, and there are many more references, that which we saw briefly there is here explained explicitly so that no one should doubt it in Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien, as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, 
whose architect and builder is God. Did God found a city on the earth with foundations? Is he the architect of any city on the earth? No. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 13, did we not see Jacob and David confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth? And they included all the other patriarchs, the faithful patriarchs in this faith that they considered themselves strangers and exiles on the earth. So further interpretation, 14. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He says in verse 14 that they made it clear who they were. Who their, well, what their identity was in relation to this world and the world to come. They made it clear. But the false teachers say, no, it's not clear in the Old Testament. It's cloudy and muddy. It's fuzzy and wuzzy in the Old Testament. That's what the false teachers say. Right. But here he says it's clear. The false teachers don't have faith. They don't have the spirit. And they don't have any concern to handle accurately the word of truth. That's why they come up with their false doctrines and say the Old Testament is about this earth and the New Testament is about heaven and spiritual things. Not true. Both Testaments are focused on heavenly and spiritual things. And then in 15 and 16, they certainly did look for the heavenly country or the heavenly city. They certainly did. Because... If they wanted to return to their homeland, their native land, like Abraham, when Abraham, when his people were defeated in Genesis 14 by the kings of the east, he could have easily conceded and he could have easily scrammed and went back to Mesopotamia. No, but he didn't do that. He took 318 trained men and he went out to war. He went out to recover a war of recovery and recovered all that he lost and returned to Canaan. Why did he do that? And then when there was temptation, misery, conflict between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, when there was doubt in relation to Isaac and who Isaac would marry, there were plenty of opportunities like those for them to go back to a previous country. But they didn't. They purposely, deliberately focused on Canaan because Canaan was the earthly symbol of their heavenly hope. That's why they did so, according to Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. Back to chapter 50 and verse 5. Joseph further says, Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. 
He's asking for permission, which is a good thing, because if he leaves secretly, Pharaoh might suspect that Joseph is fleeing Egypt now that his father has died. But that's not the case. He's not being dishonest. He's being honest by saying, I will return. And he's telling the honest truth to Pharaoh. But why is he going to return also? Not only because of honesty, but because he knows he is within the purpose of God for the nation to prosper in Egypt for a while and then at the right time be delivered from Egypt. As he says in 50, 24, and 25. 50, 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. He knows that after his death will be the time, at some point after his death, not immediately, but after his death, after they become a mighty nation, as it was prophesied in Genesis 15, 13 to 16, that they would come out with many possessions, be enslaved in that land, come out with many possessions and be delivered and come back to the land of Canaan. He knew all that. He believed all that. So that's why he says, then I will return. He's saying it both in honesty, but also in faith. In faith in the promises of God. Pharaoh, Pharaoh being congenial to Joseph, knowing that Joseph was trustworthy and wise. The answer, verse 6, and Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. Particularly, the focus is on the oath. And people generally, that's why there are law courts worldwide, those who testify in law courts are supposed to swear, swear allegiance, and, and swear that they will tell the truth. Why is that done? It's done in all societies in order to put um, gravity on what is being said and done in court so that whatever is said is carried out. Now, that's not foolproof. Nothing is foolproof. But it does add more gravity and it does cause many people and even criminals to be more cautious about what they say. And here, Pharaoh understands that, that if his loving father and loving son have this agreement with this oath, that he should carry it out. And so that happens. Verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and all his brothers, and, and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. This large caravan of people, servants of Pharaoh, elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. This would be a huge train of people leaving Egypt to journey to Canaan. And this is happening because of the great honor 
and respect that they have for Joseph and Joseph's father. This is the reason. Not because this is pomp and circumstance. They're here too. There are interpreters who find fault with Joseph permitting this to happen. Pomp and circumstance. This is not a show. No, this is giving honor where honor is due. Giving honor in the last rites for the deceased. That's what's happening here. And also we note that they left their little ones, flocks and herds in Goshen because of the long journey. This is also proof, it's tangible proof, that Joseph intends to return. He intends to keep his word and return. Then it says in 9 that chariots and horsemen also accompanied them. Why so? For protection. Because if you have all the officials of Egypt, all of the prominent men of Egypt going, they must be protected. Protected from bandits, from raiders along the way, going to and fro. And also, in case the Canaanites might suspect them, they need protection. In case the Canaanites wonder what's going on, they would, and then prematurely strike them, start some kind of raid or battle, they would have protection, self-defense. Verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful Lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. When they come to this threshing floor, they had reached a place near Shechem on the other side of the Jordan River, and it's named Atad. Now, if this is a proper name, it would be Atad. If it's not a proper name, it literally means, as a common noun, it means bramble or thorn. Bramble or thorn. And some places, of course, are full of brambles and thorns. Uh, but the threshing floor is there in that area. Sometimes it is that brambles or thorns are on the perimeter of a threshing floor, probably to prevent people and animals from coming freely and easily to seize the grain, probably for that reason. And whatever the case, this place is renamed in verse 11. It says, verse 11, Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. This word, this new name that was given to the place, Abel Mitzrayim, means the Probably it's a play on words. Probably a play on words. The word Abel, we say Abel, but Abel, it means morning or it can mean meadow. Meadow or morning. It's a homonym that could mean either one. Meadow or morning. And in this case, it fits both because likely it was situated around or in a meadow And also likely, or they do obviously say, they are mourning. The Egyptians are mourning. So the mourning of Egypt. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew name for Egypt. We get our English name Egypt from Greek. 
But in Hebrew, the name for Egypt is Mitzrayim. They call it that. And they also say it's a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians are likely the majority of the people. And besides that, Joseph and others, by this point, likely know Egyptian. They know the Egyptian language. And perhaps their garb is more Egyptian than it is Hebrew at this point. In that, that way, they identify them generally as the Egyptians. They're not being particular. They're being general about what they see. Uh, no, no fault finding there with them. Uh, and then it says in verse 10, it was a very great and sorrowful lamentation and he observed seven days mourning for his father. There on site, near the place of burial, or in the land of Canaan, uh, seven days mourning while there. This is in addition to the mourning that took place before his death. And further, it's called a very great and sorrowful lamentation. At this point, we should clarify. We said earlier that when they mourn and weep for the loss of their loved ones, they are not sinning in doing so. There are some who think there should be no weeping, no mourning, no grief, no lamentation, nothing, no kissing, no preparing the body, no honoring, no last rites. Some people think that way. That should not happen. But that's not a Christian belief. That's not a Christian or biblical belief. There is a place to mourn for the loss of life. There is a place to mourn. Now, that can be done excessively. It can be done wrongly because people will pray to their deceased ancestors as though the spirits are alive and well and will answer their requests and their prayers. No, that's a wrong way to mourn and to connect with the dead. That, that's one example of a wrong thing to do. And then others, they put a lot of show, a lot of pomp and circumstance in what they do for the dead. They are excessive there, spending too much money, making a big deal about it, letting everybody know about it, people who don't need to know, and with a big, a lavish... Uh, tombstone, monument, whatever. They do things like this when it's unnecessary. These kinds of ways are excessive. But essentially, to mourn or to weep for the dead is not a sin. It's not a sin in the Bible. Genesis 23 and verse 2. 23, 2. Abraham says this of Sarah. Abraham does this of Sarah, 23.2. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. To mourn for her and to weep for her. In 2 Samuel 1, 17-27, David, he mourned and wept. He lamented over the loss of Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan, a believer, and Saul, an unbeliever. David did so. 2 Samuel chapter 1, 17 to 27. 
In 2 Chronicles 35, 25, 2 Chronicles 35, 25, Jeremiah and the people, they lamented, they wept, they mourned when King Josiah died. 2 Chronicles 35 and verse 25. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah, and all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. In Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, after Stephen was put to death, after he was martyred, it says this in Acts chapter 8, verse 2. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. They both buried him and made loud lamentation over him. They're not sinning, and Luke does not report it as sin. He reports it as a righteous thing that they did. Also, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This is the way in which we recover from our mourning. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. This is the way to recover or receive comfort when we do grieve. 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. Our comfort in grief and our hope to overcome our grief is founded on Christ. The work of Christ, the return of Christ, the gospel of Christ. Joseph had this faith. He believed in this as well. Chapter 50 and verse 12. 50 verse 12. And thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. The fact, the the closure, the finality of the matter is explained here in verses 12 to 13. Jacob charged his sons to do it. Under oath, he obligated them, and then they carried through with the oath. They carried it out in verse 13, in the exact place that they were supposed to do it. So that the faith of Jacob is associated and in common with Abraham and Isaac and also the matriarchs. Their faith is in common there. 14. 
And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Verse 14 concludes what Joseph said he would do in verse 5. Verse 14, what he said he would do in verse 5, that he would indeed return. He did return and the whole company of people returned. Everyone returned. They did what they said they would do and then they returned. This confirms Joseph's honesty and Joseph's faith. His faith in the promises of God, the future fulfillment of God's word. This, uh, now 15, 15 to 21. Here we'll have an exchange between Joseph and his brothers. 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the evil which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers of Joseph, after the father dies, and presumably, most likely the case, as we follow this narrative sequentially, chronologically, after the burial. Verse 14 mentions the burial. So after they return to Egypt, then... The brothers of Joseph say, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the evil which we did to him? The brothers of Joseph at this point are believers. They assert that fact in verse 17. And Joseph treats them that way and has been treating them that way after he tested them. Remember, after he tested them in Genesis chapters 42 to 45, after he tested them, he was, Joseph was convinced that they were truthful, honest men, and therefore he revealed his identity to them and provided for them. He understood that he was experiencing the unfolding of his dreams related to his family. So... They, at this point, are believers. This is confirmed in verse 17 because they say they are servants of the God of your father. They are saying that they also belong to the same God as Joseph's father's God, Jacob. That is, Jacob, Joseph, and all the brothers of Joseph all worship the same God in verse 17. They say they are Servants of the God of your father. Okay, but still, as believers, now they are worried that Joseph 
will bear a grudge. And in bearing a grudge, Joseph would pay them back in full. Bear a grudge and pay him back. They are suspecting Joseph where they should not suspect him. This is wrong. Joseph deals with it very gently, but it's wrong. It's a sin in them to assume that Joseph has malice in him, a grudge, and he's waiting for Jacob to die before he pays back his brothers. How could Joseph, a believer, do that to another believer? He can't do that. He would not do that. But these other believers, the brothers of Joseph, have evil suspicion of Joseph where they should not. That's wrong. It's a sin in them. Now, of course, in in Genesis chapter 37, Genesis 37, they did do him wrong. They did... They did wrong, which may be summarized in 37.28. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, their selling of him into slavery was prefaced with what? Their jealousy of him, their hatred of him, their mockery of him. They threw him into a pit thinking that they would kill him, right? That that's what they wanted to do. They later sell him instead of killing him. They make some money instead of killing him. But they continued the deceit with the father by pretending to Jacob that he had been torn by a wild beast. So they did do many wrong things. They did sin egregiously against Joseph, likely as unbelievers at that point, but now they are believers. So they wrongfully suspect evil of Joseph. That should not be the case. Then verses 16 and 17. They send a message first, and then in verse 18, they present themselves to Joseph. First, through a message or messengers, and then personally they come. This would be to not take Joseph by surprise, but actually to help Joseph think about the matter and if he were in the heat of rage, that he would calm down by the time they showed up. Some way that they're, they're doing something like that to make sure that Joseph receives them as well as they could be received by him. You may remember in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, Nathan and Bathsheba did the same to David. Bathsheba approaches David about who is supposed to be king because they had made uh, Adonijah king, but Solomon was supposed to be king. So Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, says, didn't you say, my Lord, that Solomon would be king? But why is it now that Adonijah is king? And then as she's talking, Nathan the prophet, they agree to do it this way, Nathan the prophet enters the room and says the same thing to David to give David the impression that this is an urgent matter presented to him by two highly respected people. Well, 
in some way, they're practicing this first by messengers and then them. In the message, they say that your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now, why is Jacob saying this? Jacob, too, should not be, because Jacob should have realized this already. He had lived there 17 years, and at whatever point he said this, perhaps before he died, shortly before he died, he should know that that's the case, too, with Joseph. But he does this because Joseph is not in his presence, so he has this message relayed through the brothers, through a messenger, to Joseph. Then, and now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Jacob is the one calling the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, servants of the God of your father. And they own up to this name or this title, servants of the God of your father. Now, can you imagine a man who is so genuine, so sincere, of great faith, of great humility, he finds that his father and brothers suspected evil of him. That's why Joseph wept when they spoke to him. What more? What more can be done? What, what can be done? Nothing. And yet they suspected evil of him. This is wrong. Verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They fell down before him. They prostrated themselves. This is a sign or a token of respect. They make obeisance or they show respects. This is not worship. It's not worship. We, in previous studies in the book of Genesis, such as even in Genesis 23, uh, this occurs and it occurs in Genesis 24. It occurs in different places where respect is being shown to another either because of who they are in their age or their position in society. Um, and they identify themselves as your servants, right. your servants, which is true in a political way. But here they are trying to say it more than that. They're trying to say, whatever you want in our family, in our clan, this we will do. Joseph's answer. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, which he says twice. He says it in 21 also. Do not be afraid. So therefore, do not be afraid. Why are you afraid of me? What in the world have I done to you these 17 years so far? What have I done to you that you are afraid of me? Haven't I restored you? Haven't I been kind to you? Haven't I provided for you? Why are you afraid of me? For am I in God's place? Don't you realize I belong to God? You just called yourself servants of the God of your father. We all belong to him. I'm not in God's place. I don't have the authority to do anything contrary to the will of God. Why would you suspect me? This actually, this expression, am I in God's place, occurs in Genesis 30, 1 and 2. Genesis 30, 1 and 2. 
when someone misunderstands our place. This happens here with, between Rachel and Jacob. Though it doesn't say Joseph had the same emotional reaction, he may have had it. It doesn't tell us. We don't know. He at least makes the same statement. Notice here. Genesis 30, verses 1 and 2. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? You know the problem is not with me because of Leah in the previous chapter. The problem is not with me. I'm not impotent. The problem is with you. You are barren. And I can't do anything about that. So he's angry at his wife, Rachel. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel had evil suspicions of Jacob. And he's angry at her for that. Well, all of these in chapter 50 have evil suspicion of Joseph. And Joseph's answer is, am I in God's place? You're telling me something that only God could do, only God would do, only God knows the full truth of the matter, but God has revealed to me what I'm supposed to do based on what I see in you. And I haven't done anything to subvert the will of God in your life, why would you suspect it now? That's wrong. Verse 20. Verse 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. They meant evil, right? They wanted first to murder him in Genesis 37. Then they decide to sell him into slavery in Genesis 37 and then to cover up their sale with deceit. They meant evil, correct. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. He had already told them that in Genesis 45. In Genesis 45, verse 5, 45, 5. And now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. He had already told them clearly when they first arrived in Genesis 45. He tells them again the same truth. They meant evil, but God meant it for good, which is a classic verse which should be coupled with Acts chapter 2, 22. Acts chapter 2, 22 to 20.
4. Acts 2.22-24 Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. They were culpable. They were culpable, though they were eyewitnesses of everything. They delivered him up, delivered up Christ. They nailed Christ to a cross by the hands of godless men. They put him to death when he deserved no death. He was spotless and sinless in every way. Yet God used their evil for his good. This shows the sovereignty of God. Genesis 50, 20 and Acts, 22, Acts 2, 22 to 24. This is not only true in Joseph's life and in Jesus' life. It's true with everything that happens in the world when it happens to the elect when it happens to the redeemed, the believers, when it happens to them, God uses evil for good. Why do we say when it happens to them and only them will God use it for their ultimate good? Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. All things include all of the evil things mentioned in 31 to 39. All of the evil thing, all of the afflictions mentioned in verses 31 to 39. All things work together for good to those who love God. The lovers of God are the called of God, foreknown, predestined, justified, and glorified by God, according to this passage. And that was the faith Joseph had, and they should have had and understood. 50.21. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He provided for them and their children, and often a sign that one has genuine interest in another is how one responds to their children, whether it is a loving, proper response and care of the children. He says he will provide for them and their little ones, which would ensure their own prosperity and longevity in the land of Egypt until the right time when God would raise up Moses to deliver them from Egypt. So he comforted them by these words and spoke kindly to them by these words and promises. He had already done so for 17 years. And he's going to do so longer. How long will he do so for them? 
We'll see this in 22 to 26. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph and the father's household, that means his brothers and all of their wives and descendants, stayed there in Egypt because they too were keeping their hope in the promise of God, promises of God. Because they could have easily, after Jacob died, said, okay, Jacob is the one who led us here, but we want to go back to Canaan. Or we want to go back, or we want to live in some other country. No, they stayed in Egypt because of faith. They stayed there, and Joseph lived 110 years. In Genesis 37, verse 2, it says he was 17 when he was sold as a slave. 17. In Genesis 41, 46, it says he was 30 years old when he became the Lord of the land, the governor, ruler of the land. He was 30, which means he underwent extreme affliction for 13 years. 17 years he lived in Canaan as a shepherd. And then 13 years he lived as a slave in Egypt under affliction. And then from age 30 to 110, he lived in an exalted, prosperous, wonderful state in the land of Egypt. From age 30 to 110, which means for 80 years. God elevated him and sustained him for 80 years. 23, and Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also, the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. He saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Remember the blessing to Ephraim in Genesis 48? Ephraim is mentioned first, and that he saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, which means he saw four generations after himself. In Egypt, God blessed Ephraim with these descendants, and he, Joseph was able to witness this to the eyes of any grandparent. That's what they want to see. And if they are able to see great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, which is even rarer, it's even more delightful to them. That's what God gave to Joseph to see. He also saw the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. Machir, he becomes the one prominent son of Manasseh because it's through him that the tribe uh, continues through Machir, the son of Manasseh. That's why he's mentioned here. And you will notice this name coming, showing up in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Chronicles, whenever a genealogy is there or whenever inheritance is mentioned, this son of Manasseh, Machir. They were born on Joseph's knees. That is, he was there as a witness to it, and the immediate joy upon delivery on the knees of Joseph and then caring for the babies on his knees as a grandparent. He had that joy God gave to him. 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and 
bring you up from this land to the land which he promised or swore on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. He assures them of God's care. God will surely take care of you. He had to say this in faith because he knew what Genesis 15, 13 to 16 says in relation to them being here in the land of Egypt for a while, but God would protect them, preserve them, and deliver them from the land of Egypt and give them the land of Canaan, that this would certainly take place. He believed the word of God that he delivered, God delivered to Abraham. And he not only said it to Abraham, he repeated these words or, and similar words to Isaac, Genesis 26, verse 3, and also to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. In all these places, these promises of descendants and longevity and possession of the land of Canaan as a symbol of heaven. He also says, and he makes them swear, like Jacob. Like Jacob made his son swear, Joseph made the sons of Israel, his brothers, swear. Swear an oath. You shall surely, or you shall carry my bones up from here. In due time, they did. In due time, they did. Genesis 13, or Exodus, Exodus 13, 19. Exodus thirteen nineteen, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. And so they did, under Moses' leadership. Verse 26, 50, 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Died at the age of 110. This is repeated. Now, how long did he live with his brothers? How long did Joseph live with his brothers in Egypt? He lived with his father in Egypt 17 years, actually 17 years with his father in Canaan, and then 17 years with his father in Egypt. That's Joseph. But how long did Joseph live with his own brothers? He lived with his own brothers 71 years. 71 years in the land of Egypt. 71 years. How do we know that? Because Joseph said, we had read it in chapter 45, that two years of the famine have already taken place. There are five years more. Well, if there was seven years of plenty, two years of famine, that's nine years. Joseph became ruler at age 30. That means that he met his brothers and revealed his, himself to his brothers when he was 39 years old. That's when they migrated to Egypt. So from age 39 to 110, for a period of 71 years, he lived with his brothers and the whole clan knew each other for that long. He saw the promises of God unfold because they would have become numerous 
in terms of descendants and been taught the promises of God, to, to anticipate the promises of God, right. not left alone, but they would have a good and sound teacher in Joseph to teach them the ways of God and the gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.